If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. In 1616, England's first ambassador to Mughal India, Sir Thomas Rowe, stepped onto the shores of the subcontinent, ready to forge a bright relationship between the two nations and hammer out a trade deal. But... The embassy was doomed from the start. In her new book, Courting India, the Oxford professor of early modern literature and culture, Nandini Das, explores this early strained relationship between England and the Mughal Empire. Rhiannon Davis spoke to Nandini to find out more. As you write in your book, England's first embassy in India in 1616 wasn't a huge success. So why did you choose to focus on it in Courting India? It's interesting, isn't it? When we think about England's connection with India, we think of it as a really pre-planned, pre-mediated, grand endeavour in some ways. Perhaps what interested me initially in this very, very early stage was the uncertainty, the freedom in moving away from that historical grand narrative of the empire. Um, the freedom of looking at characters, 
And there's a huge cast of characters, of course, in in this story. Characters both English and Indian, who in some cases we know very little about. But the most exciting thing really is that sense of risk and unpredictability about this particular period. This is a moment where England by no means is the huge British empire that it will come to be. It is still very much a bit player, you know, hanging on the margins of the stage, wanting to go in into its big act. Mm, That's so interesting. So how does it compare then to other European players, like, say, the Portuguese? So if you think about the Portuguese in the 16th century, the English arrive in India And the Portuguese have already been there for the best part of a century almost. Um, And that's a really telling point. There's a huge multi-generational Portuguese presence in Western India, in Goa, which is essentially a Portuguese realm. Um, It's governed by the Portuguese. The English don't really have a foothold at this point. And this is not simply about India either. There's a belatedness that haunts English travel, English global plans throughout this period and across the globe. They're equally belated in the Americas. They're equally conscious that they may have already missed the boat when it comes to the Spice Islands of Indonesia. The Dutch and the Portuguese have already made their claim. And that's partly what drives the Indian initiative forward. You know, all these merchants um, who are desperately keen on making this new contact before they miss their chance entirely. And what was the appeal of India at this point then? What position does it hold on the global stage? Again, I think it's a question of slightly rejigging our mental map, I suppose, When we think about the 18th and 19th centuries and you think about world players, we tend to think about European imperial presences, not only within Europe, but beyond Europe. So we think about the British in India and um, in the Americas. We think about the French and the Belgians in Africa, for instance. Roll a few centuries back to the early 16th to the mid-16th century, and the big geopolitical powers across the globe are, frankly, not the Europeans. They're Islamic. It's the Ottomans, the Safavids of Persia, the Ottomans of now Turkey, essentially, and the Mughals of northern India, who control most of the kind of mercantile trade routes of the period. And of course, there's the Chinese empires as well, and the Japanese. However, the Japanese kind of have separated themselves to some extent from that larger global route. But in terms of the real kind of luxury trade that Europe is really interested in, the trade in spices, in sugar, in silks and velvets, and in gold and silver, The place to go to is the Middle East and Asia, South Asia particularly, Um, and that's where the power lies. So this is why England is determined to set up an embassy then. It is for trade, for money. Absolutely. So um, one of the things that is, again, slightly counterintuitive is that when we think about embassies, we think of them as political ventures. You know, uh, a ruler or a state decides that they want relationship 
with another state or another ruler, and they send an envoy or an ambassador. But particularly with England in this period, and even slightly earlier, embassies are quite often driven and really, frankly, bankrolled by the merchants. Merchants who are really keen to establish those new trade ventures. And there's a real practical political reason for that. You have to think of this as post-Reformation. You have to think of it as, you know, following England's separation from Catholic Europe and following Elizabeth I's excommunication by the Pope. So what has happened in that period in the late 16th century is a slow separation between England, England's trade, England's industries, and continental Europe. And the big thing, the big thing that keeps English merchants awake at night in this period is what do they do with their primary kind of mercantile stronghold, their business in English wool? If there's one thing that England is good at with its rain-soaked fields is feeding its sheep and producing excellent wool. Now, till the mid-16th century, that wool could have gone to continental Europe and it was processed there and sold and brought in huge amounts of revenue. What happens when those trade routes start drying up? You have to find alternative trade routes, perhaps in the global south, new trade treaties, and that's exactly what drives this. And would people of India have wanted the wool? Well, Rhiannon, I'll leave it to your imagination. Imagine you are an Indian subject of, you know, early 17th century Mughal Empire in the heat of Delhi um, in the summer. How would you fancy wearing some wool? Lovely (laughs) mesh wool as it might be. (laughs) Maybe not top of my priority list. (laughs) I mean, there is a vent, as they would say, as the English merchants would say, for English wool. Because apart from being very warm, it's also extremely hard-wearing. So the Indians do buy it initially, um, as do um, various other kind of contacts in um, other kind of South Asian states. Um, But they buy it quite often for, you know, coverings for their elephants. And let's face it, elephants don't change their fashion year to year. So once you've flooded that market with English wool, there is very little continuing demand for it. Thinking about the ambassador himself, the man they choose to send is someone called Sir Thomas Rowe. Can you tell us a bit about him? Rowe is a fascinating figure. And I realise that I'm terribly kind of, um, shall I say, um, well, let's face it, obsessed with Rowe, um, having worked on him for um, the best part of a decade. But he is fascinating because he's one of those people who tend to crop up on the margins of a number of important events in this period. But Rowe crops up in North American ventures. He goes to Guyana in South America, for instance. That's one of his earliest kind of exploits. He is a member of parliament during the long and fraught kind of political troublemaking between James I and his parliaments, the adult parliament as it's called. 
He goes to continental Europe with Elizabeth of Bohemia, James I's daughter, when she's married off. He's a friend of Ben Jonson and John Donne, the poets. Um, He kind of moves around in the highest circles of power. So the really interesting thing about it is that although he on the surface, looks like a minor character. He's got his finger absolutely on the pulse of what's going on in English politics and continental politics of this period. Definitely. And hearing that CV then, you might think that this man is uniquely suited for heading up an embassy to India. But his character perhaps doesn't seem to have the best attributes for diplomacy. What kind of personality traits maybe didn't lend themselves to being this ambassador? Roe is interesting because on paper, he is actually uniquely suited. He's had a little bit of overseas experience. He's gone on a few diplomatic ventures. But goodness, he's impatient. And he's touchy and prickly in multiple ways. Partly it is a condition that is invested on him by his position. Here is a man who wants to be worthy of the post that he's given. And Roe takes his task very, very seriously as an ambassador. He's meant to be a reflection of his monarch. But at the same time, he's on the payroll of a trading company. His post is not being paid by James I. It's not being paid by the monarch. He has a mercantile duty to do. And that is getting this elusive trade license. So in some ways, as scholars have pointed out before, Roe is torn by these two sometimes mutually opposing imperatives, the political and the mercantile. And sometimes they don't see eye to eye. But there's something else alongside that. And that is Roe's own emergent sense of a national identity and national pride. And in some ways, what Roe represents is a larger national movement about thinking about England itself as a state to be reckoned with. James I himself is very keen on being seen as a political power to be reckoned with. In fact, he tells Roe that Whatever he does, he must impress on the Mughal emperor that James is much loved by his subjects and much feared by his European competitors. So Roe takes that task very seriously. He's also influenced by the stories he's heard about India in the past. All of that kind of gather into this slightly unpredictable mess of assumptions and preconceptions and hopes and dreams, which basically means Roe is a man with big dreams and a very, very short fuse when he reaches Ajmer, the court of the Mughal Emperor Jahangir. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. 
We don't always realise just how much our negative thoughts and experiences stick with us and weigh us down. You may find your brain constantly running through a highlight reel of bad moments. That comment your friend made last week that hurt your feelings. That frustrating thing your mum does. Or that silly thing you said in a meeting. Maybe it's time to get it all off your chest. Whether it's a tiny annoyance or something much bigger. Talking about it can give you some relief and lead you to a potential solution. That's where therapy comes in. It's a safe space to share whatever's weighing you down and learn to process it so your internal highlight reel can focus on the good stuff. And BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy on a schedule that works for you. Connect with a licensed therapist by text, phone or video call. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Let it out with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash history extra today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, dot com slash History Extra. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. So what happens then when he reaches India? When Roe reaches India, he realises that, as he says, he's got to repair a ruined house. And that's because the whole of the English enterprise in India has been run by merchants in the past. And it's been run pretty ad hoc. So merchants occasionally have essentially overpromised They have pretended to be ambassadors when they're not. They have caused trouble by getting drunk on Indian city streets and picking fights with others. Um, It's really a mess. So Ro knows that he has to be tough. Um, He has to be tough both in his interactions with the Mughal bureaucrats and in his interactions with these merchants of the trading company, the ones who are based in India and otherwise called factors. They're called factors because they're mercantile agents of the East India Company and they are in charge of the factory where all the trading goods are being collected in order to be sent home on the next ship. But the problem with the factors is that they see Roe as a competitor. They see him as essentially this posh boy who has rocked up into their business and is sticking his nose in where it doesn't belong. He does not have the experience on the ground. He does not know the rhythms and the grammar of trade in South Asia. But Roe is equally as insistent that as the king's ambassador, he has to have the final say in these cases. At the same time, he is extremely prickly about his treatment by the Mughals themselves. He knows that before him, other people have pretended to be an ambassador. And that's why when he kind of lands in Surat in Western India, the Mughals just don't take him seriously. They go, yes, yes, you know, another English ambassador, right. And Roe is inflamed. He is absolutely aghast at the lack of prestige. Here he was thinking that this would be the making of him 
He's got an ambassadorial position, which would give him diplomatic immunity, which would mean that people would wine and dine him. Instead of that, he's been stuck in a tent while all his goods go through a really thorough customs check. He's not having any of that. Do his fortunes change then when he does go to the emperor's court? To some extent, Rose Tory at Jahangir's court is full of ups and downs. You know, there are weeks when he thinks this is it. I've got to pack up and just go home. I cannot take this any longer because someone has kept me waiting in a queue of visitors for four hours. And this is not how an ambassador should be treated. The week after he has a wonderful heart-to-heart about Indian and English art with the Mughal emperor. And he goes, the emperor loves me. I shall follow him to the ends of the world. Something that I found really telling in your book is we have these amazing records in Rose journals. We have like hour by hour reports of what he's been up to in some instances. Whereas on the other hand, Jahinga's records are notably lacking about Roe and the English when he arrives at court and when he leaves, not a mention is made. What do you think that can tell us about his relationship with Roe and the English? That's a really interesting question. You're absolutely right. In Mughal records, there is very, very little mention of Europeans in general and no mention of Roe at all. In all the records both visual and textual. There is one Mughal miniature which may or may not have a disgruntled-looking man in a European doublet who could possibly be Roe, waiting again rather impatiently in a queue of people, petitioners. But apart from that, there is absolutely no sign of this English contingent who was there and who was who were following the Mughal emperor for you know, months at end, occasionally. The Mughal emperors, both Jahangir and his father, Akbar, are very much conscious of Portuguese presence. The Portuguese have been there for a while. Jesuit priests have been sent by the Catholic governor um, of Goa to Akbar's court, given that Akbar was interested in global religions. That meant it kind of claimed his attention, one might say. But even then, those references are fleeting. There are occasional references to the kula poshan, the the sieve wearers, rather than turbans, people who wear what looks like upturned sieves on their head, hats, essentially. But that's pretty much it. For the Mughals, the English, and really the larger European geopolitical field does not feature in their worldview. What features is the great Islamic empires, the Ottomans and the Safavids. Those are the ones they focus on. Those are the ones which speak the same diplomatic language as the Mughals. Roe does try to attract their attention by bringing gifts. And I found this such an interesting part of your book, the the anger and the um, upset that these gifts cause him. Can you tell us a bit about what he's brought along and the reception it has? <laughs> you know, I have this kind of vision of Roe having nightmares about those gifts constantly. They haunt him right from the beginning. So here's the thing. If you're an ambassador, 
you're meant to be a reflection of the monarch who sent you, and that means you take really high-quality gifts with you. But there are two problems when Rose sets out. Firstly, the pure fact that the English state doesn't have that much money to invest in gifts, and the merchants, being merchants, you can't blame them, of really finely hauling the value of their investment in these gifts. The second is a misconception about what India is and what the Indian court would be like. Despite all they have heard from earlier travellers, India is still semi-mythical for the English court. They have very little idea about the levels of culture and magnificence at that court. So, for instance, they send a carriage with Roe. You know, you'd think this is a fairly, fairly safe choice. You know, carriages have just newly become fashionable in England. Um, just a few years ago, a carriage had been sent to the Russian Tsar, who seemed to like it. And in fact, that carriage still survives at the Kremlin. So why not do the same thing? If a gift has been successful once, try it again. So they send a carriage. Jahangir takes one look at that carriage and spots two problems. One, that in the long sea voyage to India, the carriage is pretty much decomposed. The velvet has started rotting, the wood has warped. So basically what Jahangir says is, yes, I like the idea of this thing, but I'm just going to remake the whole thing in proper Indian velvet. I'm going to change all the iron nails for silver nails and cover it all with gold. And that's what he does. For Roe, he can kind of admit that this carriage was dreadful by the time it landed. But at the same time, he bristles at the insult that this poses for England. Here is an emperor who's taken a gift, and then it's pretty much the equivalent of someone going, yes, thank you for this present you've given me, but the wrapping paper is utterly terrible. So tell you what, I'll wrap it for you again, and then you can pretend to give it to me again. I could see how that would pose a bit of an issue for Roe. <laughs> but outside of his relationship with the emperor then, he also tries to form connections with other major players in the court. And the one I wanted to ask you about in particular is his son, Prince Karam. How is their relationship perhaps not the easiest of paths? What complexities does Roe find when he's trying to ingratiate himself with the prince? Kuram at this point is pretty much the de facto crown prince. He has brothers. One of his brothers is in prison. The others are slightly younger than him. Kuram has already had a brilliant record in wars and battles with Mughal kind of competitors, essentially. He is also as Roe would put it, a proud and haughty prince. Let's face it, in a hugely competitive political scenario, as is indeed the Mughal court, you very soon learn to watch your back. So Kuram is notoriously slow to give his trust to anyone. And he's certainly not going to give it to this random European person who's landed in his court and who wants to get a trade permit particularly because the permit he wants to get belongs to an area of which Kurram himself is in control. And this is something that Roe does not quite understand. 
before he went to India, he was very much a close contact of the crown prince, the initial crown prince of England, Prince Henry, James I's eldest son, who tragically died um, at a very early age. So Rode thinks of the role of the crown prince very much from an English perspective. However, in Mughal India, the crown prince's role, or at least Khurram's role, as the favourite son is very different. He has much more individual, independent power. And there is really little love lost between the two right from the very beginning. Or rather, there is little love lost from Rose's perspective. Khurram, at least initially, one imagines, really did not pay this minor European player much attention at all. Apart from the fact that this minor European player kept writing him letters asking for trade permits every other day. So we've touched quite a lot on the challenges that Roe faced, but thinking about what he achieved by the time the embassy comes to an end, can we say he had any successes? I think it depends on how we measure success with this embassy. And this is particularly what I found interesting. One of the reasons why Roe's embassy has been largely neglected in our public understanding and public discourse is because technically Roe achieves very little. So he wants an open trade permit. He does not get that. In fact, in very practical terms, what he gains is so little that the English will not send another ambassador for years to come after him. It simply doesn't make good business sense for them. But there is much that happens beyond that very simple investment and gain equation on the page. Rose's map of India becomes the primary kind of visual image of India for over a century after him. Rose's perception of what he might define as the Indian character or the Mughal character becomes the defining narrative against which the British Empire kind of negotiates its own engagements with the powers that be in northern India and to some extent in western and southern India as well. So there are multiple kind of assumptions and preconceptions that are established by Roe, pretty much because he produces so much material, because he's such a powerful voice. There's also another strand, which is equally fascinating, I think, but gets completely lost. And it is fascinating because it gets completely lost. And that is Roe's absolute emphasis that colonial settlement is not the way to go in India. He basically says repeatedly throughout his embassy that traffic or trade and war are mutually incompatible. If you want to make a settlement, you have to build a fortress. That costs money. If you have to build a fortress, you have to put soldiers there. The Indians, A, are not going to suffer that in silence, and B, again, that costs money. The problem is that the East India Company does not listen to him. And they learn that at their cost later on. They build various settlements, and some of those settlements have to be folded up after a few years 
simply because of the money drain it is. But the other thing that Roe constantly emphasizes when he returns is something that I find equally fascinating and perhaps the most fascinating of all. And that is a narrative of religious tolerance. Roe, who is a militant Protestant, who goes fired by his understanding of English and Christian superiority over these Islamic forces, goes to India into a subcontinent where the Mughals have realized through pain and loss and experience that the only way to gain and retain power is to have a degree of religious freedom. And that religious freedom is constrained in various ways. Of course it is, through taxation, through legal strictures and various other things. But there is religious freedom within the country. The Hindus and the Muslims at Jahangir's court speak to each other. The Mughal emperor marries into Hindu families. Roe finds that fascinating, strange but fascinating. And to him, when he comes back to England, that seems to quantify the key difference between England's poor financial and economic performance and the Mughal Empire's success. He says in the parliament at one point that what the king needs to do is follow the example of the Mughal ruler and allow people of other religious faiths to not only come and settle, but practice their religious faith in England so that they will then, you know, trade and work and enrich the economy. That's the only way to go as far as he's concerned. And I find that absolutely fascinating. What can this episode tell us about the wider story of colonisation? Where do you think it fits in the narrative? For me, it tells us two different things. One of them is to do with complexity and entanglement. Quite often, the history of this period is told in terms of big stories and big ideas about trade, about sovereignty and about empire, with an eye to what the British Empire was going to become in the future. But this particular story opens a really interesting window, I think, into the actual cogs that are whirring interconnectedly behind those big ideas. So in the process, what it shows is that what happens in terms of English kind of fortunes in India is linked to what happens in terms of English fortunes in the Virginia colony in America or in the Ottoman Empire, in the Safavid Empire, for instance. So that's one part of that story of interconnection. And the other, I suppose, is about the role of memory in cross-cultural encounters. One of the things that I try to show through this story is how a new world, you know, then and now is hardly ever new. A traveller going to a new place looks at it through a lens of memory, of things that they have seen and heard and assumed back home. And that's what Roe does. When he sees the Mughal emperor on his throne, under a canopy, the thing that he remembers is the play of Christopher Marlowe, Tamburlaine, on an English stage. And that's hugely important. No cross-cultural encounter occurs in a vacuum. That was Nandini Das. Her book, Courting India, is published by Bloomsbury and available now. A version of this interview also appears in BBC History magazine's March issue, which is on sale now. 
Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Sam Leal Green. A collision between a Chinese jet and an American spy plane. He came and rammed into our left wing. With relations increasingly strained, what are the chances of things spinning out of control? The Western world was asleep. I'm Gordon Carrera. I'll be exploring the friction in this most important of relationships and asking, has the West taken its eye off the ball? You cannot ignore China. From BBC Radio 4, this is Shadow War, China and the West. Listen wherever you get your podcasts.